Are you fascinated with shipwrecks? Then today's special Diving Deeper is just for you. We have a two-part interview today, so be sure to hang in through the full episode. Let me give you just a little bit of history to set the stage on this particular shipwreck. On June 21st, as part of a memorial tribute to the 20 sailors who lost their lives when a federal survey ship sank on that day in 1860, NOAA vessels transited the area where the ship was thought to have gone down. In today's Diving Deeper, we will meet two of the staff involved with this effort as they tell us about their journey to find the U.S. Coast Survey steamer, the Robert J. Walker. First, let's kick off this episode with Vitae Pradath. Vitae is a physical scientist from NOAA's Office of Coast Survey. Hi, Vitae. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Kate. Vitae, before we get into how your team found the Walker, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the history of the Robert J. Walker? Sure, Kate. So the Walker is actually the uh, U.S. Coast Survey steamer, Robert J. Walker, and she was a uh, Coast Survey vessel. We know that she was struck around uh, 2.15 in the morning by a schooner about 12 miles off the coast of Atlantic City, New Jersey. She was struck in heavy seas and fog, so from what I understand, she took on water pretty quickly, ran toward shore, and unfortunately she sank and was lost at sea. This occurred on June 21st, 1860. Uh, ironically, is also World Hydro Day, marking about 153 years ago that the accident occurred. And for Coast Survey, it's actually our worst single disaster where we lost 20 of our colleagues. So it's definitely a very tragic loss then to, to lose 20 sailors. This year, on the June 21st anniversary, the NOAA ship Thomas Jefferson, from my understanding, was surveying in this general area where the walker went down. as just part of normal survey operations, a project that you had going on. What did this additional survey entail to try to find the walker? Sure. Well, the NOAA Thomas ship Jefferson and her very capable crew were performing hydrographic surveys in support of the Hurricane Sandy recovery work that's actually happening right now. And so essentially she's using contemporary survey techniques with different forms of sonar, multi-beam echo sounders, side-scanning sonars, and advanced sensors. Her goal is to do what we've always done in terms of coast survey, which is keeping our waterways safe for maritime commerce. So there wasn't much additional in terms of what we've already been doing. It's just we've been working in the same area as the walker itself, and potentially where she could have sank. Okay. And timed just just right there with right. that with that anniversary. So Vitae, what can you tell us about the surveys, and how do you how do you find a wreckage like this underwater? Sure, Kate. Well, there's many things happening to at, at the same time. Primarily, there's three tools that we use when we're trying to do this work. So the first tool is the multi-beam echo sounder, and what this does is it provides us with the uh, 3D topography or the relief of the seafloor. The next tool is the side scanning sonar. And what this provides us is with a picture of the seafloor. It's almost akin to kind of peeling back the water itself and seeing what's on the actual seafloor. And the last sensor of the three is the advanced uh, GPS sensors that not only tell us where we are, but also how the ship is moving through the water. So how the ship is heaving up and down, if it's swaying side to side or if it's surging back and forth. So essentially, the GPS sensors answers the where and the sonars answer the what. But ultimately, it's an intricate and well choreographed dance and really really in concert these tools allow us to accurately and precisely map the seafloor. Great. So Vitae, is this a, a fairly routine process? I mean I'm sure things happen differently every research cruise, but did you have to do anything different with your 
general survey approach when you were looking specifically for the walker in this case? Not so much, Kate. In many ways, it was fairly routine in terms of how the survey was planned, how it was executed. We just had this other extra information that kind of clued us into potentially, hey, look out, there might be something here too as well. You might want to key in on it too as well, but as other ancillary information that we gained from our partners too. What was different about this survey was we had the input of the Maritime Heritage Program as well as the archaeologist and what we gleaned from them was context. So essentially it's applying hydrographic science to nautical archaeology and kind of the combination of, of, of the two fields itself is what made this project successful. And what makes it very cool and yes. for those of us that are interested in, in, in shipwrecks and in this kind of a story with this unique history behind this story for Noah it's it's nice to kind of get that behind the scenes perspective right. from you today. So, what was the the atmosphere on the ship, or what was kind of the level of excitement when you did come across what looked like it might be the Walker in your scans? Sure. Well, the the crew of the Thomas Jefferson they were already briefed on essentially the significance of the Walker and what she was, her history. So there there, there was extra attention paid on this actual survey itself just because of that because the crew did realize that hey this is 2020 of our colleagues that are actually lost at sea from that standpoint there was quite a bit of extra attention played on the survey itself okay and and Vitae what when you see something or when you did find that sort of general outline of the vessel on your scans sort of what happens next what's the next step the next step is what I call the human interpretation process, if you will. So there's the two perspectives that I employ. So in my world, it's the science-based interpretation. Mm -hmm. So from a objective standpoint, I know how did the sonar return look? What did it look like in the sonar record? But then there's an art to it too as well. And that's where you kind of take context to it too as well. So you say, okay, well, I can see the shape of it, but I sort of know that it's in the shape, um, the outline of a hull of a ship itself. So this is where we really will rely on our colleagues for some context. So our colleagues that were at the uh, Maritime Heritage Program, they're, they're the ones that are the experts in this, and they provide the context in terms of things such as the composition of the ship itself, any machinery, any specific feature that may be distinguishable in the science record itself. And what they did is that they took the innate ability of humans to synthesize information. So they took our data, they did some diving observations as well. They had their own data and they learned, processed, and, and they kind of put everything into context. They're the ones that actually pr provided the context to say, yes, this is the actual walker. So. In summary, you have a, a, a ship or a platform that's about 85 feet above the actual walker, and through some remote sensing techniques that we provided, we acoustically imaged something on the seafloor. But ultimately, it's the human eye that usually is going to be your best sensor. So in this case, science found the feature, but it was the art of interpretation that applied a context to tell us what this was. So thanks, Vite, for taking us through the hydrographic surveying portion 
of what went into finding the walker. And before I transition to your colleague, Jim Delgado, I just wanted to ask you if there was anything you wanted to to leave listeners with from your experience on, on finding this particular shipwreck. Sure. In many ways, this was much more than just finding a shipwreck. It was really about bringing our colleagues home and how fitting it was to have the NOAA ship Thomas Jefferson, named after the father of Coast Survey, honor them. And I, and I think we will continue to honor them by doing the same mission that Thomas Jefferson envisioned over 200 years ago by keeping mariners safe and keeping commerce, maritime commerce flowing. Thanks so much, Vite, for taking us through this part of the journey to find the walker. Now let's transition to our second interview today with James Delgado, Director of the Maritime Heritage Program at NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. Hi, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Jim, you were part of the dive team that located the walker, correct? Yes, indeed. Privileged to be part of that team. What can you tell us about this experience? You read about something in the history books, and in the case of Walker, thanks to Captain Skip Taberge, we know a fair deal about Walker's history. But reading about it, seeing a portrait of it, as we were fortunate enough to do at the Mariner's Museum, is one piece of it. But it is, in some ways, not the pun, it's flat. It's two-dimensional. It's like that picture. You want to go through that that gateway and learn more. And that's what diving on these shipwrecks does, is it connects you physically to the past. And so for the team, as Matt Lawrence and Dan Basta and uh, Tane Castle and Russ Green all dropped down, what confronts you is this sense of that history now three-dimensional mm-hmm. and real. To see the hole punched in the side of the bow and to see blankets still there preserved in the mud where the crew tried to stop the leak as Walker was sinking and as the steam is going and they're racing for the lighthouse, make something otherwise found in a newspaper online come to life. And in that, you begin to appreciate what it was like for those guys on the Walker and the one lady that night when 72 of them sailed into harm's way and 20 of them lost their lives. Thanks, Jim, for sharing with us a little bit about your experience and how tragic to have lost 20 sailors that terrible evening. What can you tell us about the characteristics of the ship? Or what were you able to see that helped confirm to you and your team that it was, in fact, the walker and not another shipwreck? The New Jersey coast is littered with many wrecks. But fortunately, there's an exceptional group of sport divers, wreck divers, who regularly go out there, sleuth, try to discover more. And it was thanks to some of those divers' reports, and in particular, Captain Eddie Boyle, one of the pioneered dive boat captains on the old gypsy. Uh, Eddie had dived down there and he'd found a, a rectangular brass porthole. Brought that up and that's a pretty interesting thing. Most portholes come off a wrecks around, but this rectangular one was a, a mystery. He shared this with Joyce Steinmetz, who's a researcher at East Carolina University, and Joyce has worked uh, as an intern uh, in Washington. We knew her and she'd shared some of her research on wreck diving, but also on fishing and in and around wrecks. So when the thought of trying to find Walker came up, contacted Joyce, she said, well, there is this one wreck, and nobody knows its name. It's called the $25 wreck because that's what the the price was to get the coordinates to dive it after a fisherman found it and sold those numbers to Captain Boyle. She said, a lot of people have dived it, but 
no, no smoking gun yet. She said, but there's this funny rectangular portal. The Mariner's Museum had this portrait of the walker, and you look closely, and Joyce sees this. The portholes there are rectangular, because this is a very early iron steamship. This is being built before gold is discovered in California in 1849. It goes into service in January of 1848 at a time when iron is about to make a big impact in the United States. So with that as a thought, more research showed that it had a particular rare type of engine. It was so big, it was in this area. And all of that led, thanks to the opportunity to be out on the water, doing some post-Hurricane Sandy surveys. And in the case of the sanctuary boat, SRVX, because they were on their way in response to a community request to try to find a historic lighthouse that Sandy had knocked off and into the ocean to see what was left and if it could be recovered as an important piece of history. Chance came for two vessels to go out there and to take a look. Thomas Jefferson did an incredible survey with Vite Pradeth and Joyce Steinmetz joining him. And that showed the wreck was in the right spot, just a mile and a half away from where it was thought to have hit the other ship. And it was pointed directly to shore, headed for the Absecon Inlet Light, which today still stands and was the beacon for which these guys were racing as the cold water came in and extinguished the fires, and down she went. The characteristics on the sonar showed two small engines lying in there and side wheels on each side, and the bow had actually bent up, thrust up as if the ship had sunk rapidly by its head, hit the bottom, and just strained it and pushed that iron until the bow is rising towards the surface. And the shape of the bow could be figured out through the sonar, and it matched the type of bow the walker had. So with that, I mean, as sound paints incredible pictures, but you also need to put human eyes on it. In this case, the wreck was only 85 feet deep, and so the sanctuary's team, on the way to New York to look for the lighthouse, stopped, dropped into the water, and the engines not only looked the same as the patent drawings filed with the government for Walker's engines, the dimensions matched perfectly. The type of construction matched perfectly. The layout of the ship matched perfectly. So there were all these points where you could say yes, 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 and yes, even though you're moving with visibility of only a few feet. The team's pretty skilled. They were able to map it all out in their mind's eye, came up, and I remember standing on the deck and asked uh, Matt Lawrence, well, what do you think? And he goes, it's the walker. <laughs> and so, yeah, that, that was a great moment because what had previously been an obstruction marked on the chart was now a wreck that in many ways is a very important ship for the entire country and in particular for all of us in NOAA because this is the largest loss of life ever in the history of NOAA or a predecessor agency. Jim, Will the walker be removed from the seafloor, or will it remain there and be preserved sort of in this final resting place? Walker sits on the bottom in an active area of ocean where people fish, people dive. None of that's going to change. Walker is owned by the U.S. government uh, as a co-survey ship. Like Navy ships, it would never really be abandoned, and it would remain the property of the government. And in this case, it still belongs to NOAA. We're not going to make the walker a marine sanctuary. We're not going to put any fences up. We're not going to require any permits. We want to enhance the diving experience and have people gain more appreciation by working with them and helping facilitate more mapping, more study. The idea being no restrictions, 
But we do ask that people don't take souvenirs. Anything that has been found already, we're working with local communities to put those on display in area museums so that people ashore who don't dive can learn more about Walker's story. And we're looking to try to establish a permanent memorial to the 20 who died somewhere close to uh, the wreck site, probably uh, in Atlantic City itself. Jim, what is the goal or the purpose for keeping this area open for wreck diving? What we want to do is with this one ship uh, in particular, this is a perfect opportunity for us to work hand in hand with the wreck diving, sport diving community. There's some great folks out there that do a tremendous amount of work. There's folks who research this history. Gary Gentile has written incredible books about the wrecks of New Jersey. Dan Lieb heads up the New Jersey Historical uh, Diving Association. There's the New Jersey Maritime Museum headed by Deb Whitcraft. All of these people can be powerful partners in sharing the story and learning more about what's on the bottom of the ocean. And if anything should ever come up, any other artifacts, they could be treated and go on display in a museum if they really help make the connection mm -hmm. and give people that sense of, this is not just something I read in a newspaper account. This is not just that picture on the wall. This is real. So James, my last question for you today is just to share your thoughts on, on finding and preserving shipwrecks, just kind of in, in general throughout your history, the things that, that you've worked on. Why is this important for us to do, to find these shipwrecks and to preserve these areas? And, and what can we learn from it? I think questing to find shipwrecks is part of an ongoing thing that we all need to do as human beings to better understand the oceans. It's not just that they cover so much of the planet, it's because the ocean is vital to us. That's one of the key missions of NOAA. It's to, to explore, to learn, to preserve wherever possible, to understand how the oceans drive our weather, how they create oxygen, how they're the source of half the world's food, how they're a highway that connects us, and why the Coast Survey has to chart our coast to keep the stream of commerce going, because 90% of our goods move by water. All of that is important, and if we look at heritage, at maritime heritage, not just in the National Marine Sanctuaries but beyond, and see how this connects us as Americans, as human beings, to the oceans, perhaps in that we can learn a few things. One, that we have a stake in this planet and we have used this ocean, at times abused it, and that history is reflected that these places on the bottom are powerful links, not just to big events, but to ordinary people like you and me, who occasionally are rendered extraordinary by exceptional circumstances or who get caught up in things bigger than themselves, and the ocean is one of those places. But it's also an opportunity through these discoveries to remind people, particularly young people, that there is a vast ocean of opportunity as well, and a chance to reach out to explore. You don't need to join Starfleet to boldly go and to seek out new life and evidence of old civilization. You can do that in the ocean. So join us at NOAA, join our, many of our partners working in other agencies, in states and in nonprofits. The oceans need the attention, they need our help, and they also need, and I think a discovery like this helps remind us, that understanding that we are inexorably linked to the oceans, as President John F. Kennedy said, the sea is in our blood, literally, and it has been the source of our life 
and it is indeed the the only real source of ongoing life this planet has so we need to we need to pay heed and take care of the oceans thanks so much to vite and jim for joining us today on diving deeper to share more about your discovery of the robert j walker to learn more visit oceanservice.noaa.gov that's all for today's show thanks for tuning in to diving deeper we'll be back in just two weeks